Welcome to Politics Considered, the show in which we discuss some things political. I'm your host, Bill Gallagher. Today's show is part two of my exclusive interview with Mr. Jonathan Franks, president of Lucid Strategies. Welcome back, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. So before we get into this general foreign policy discussion, I want to ask you about politicians and others involved in all of these prisoner release efforts through the years. And I know that you work for Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, and you've worked with a lot of politicians and diplomats such as Bill Richardson. And I imagine that there are some elected officials who genuinely worked behind the scenes and were effective and met with families, etc., and I also suspect that there were many who didn't did nothing, but then wanted to be a part of a photo op when someone came home. And in the last segment, we talked about, you know, how Trevor Reed's parents, while they praised President Biden, they wouldn't take Ted Cruz's call because they felt that Cruz did nothing to help. So do you mind just telling us about some of the people who helped and some that weren't helpful? Well, Ted's an interesting story. They actually did get that call off the record. Senator Cruz said early on, we had asked for his help. I was literally on a dental chair in between dental procedures. And Mrs. Reed, because Mr. Reed was still living in Russia trying to deal with this. Mrs. Reed and I had a conversation with Senator Cruz's staff that just absolutely made my head explode, in which they told us that they were going to decline to get involved because they thought if they did get involved, it would hurt Trevor because Putin doesn't like Senator Cruz. And I, my immediate response was, so Senator, so, so the Senator's position is the Russians don't like him, but they're in love with John Cornyn. Like, come on, Senator Cornyn's just as sanctioned by the Russians as Ted Cruz and Senator Cornyn, thank God, picked up this case and did incredible work. He did. He worked in a bipartisan way, very effectively. So in the process of that, like certainly my suspicion. My feelings about Ted Cruz were confirmed, but I developed a lot of respect for Senator Cornyn, a lot. I, I like I I didn't mean to interrupt, but I really like the fact that you praise Republicans and Democrats in this time of hyperpartisanship. We need more people like you because you just want to get these people home and you'll work with anybody, right? Correct. And you know, while we're talking about partisanship, one of the examples that I give is I have been working with Mike Lee now for nine months directly. Republican, Republican, very Republican from Utah. Utah. Okay. Um, And the one leading the 43 members that are, you know, senators to say they won't vote for a clean debt ceiling. Senator Lee and I don't agree on politics. I would walk over broken glass for that guy. And I don't agree with much. I certainly don't agree with walking the debt limit out to the brink. But the way that he has fought for Ridge Alconis, I have often said if I had that kind of support on every single case, we'd have a lot less hostages. And so to me, politics, I grew up in this world. I was going to school. I mean, I went to D.C. private school. I, I was going to school with people that my parents were arguing with in the newspaper on a daily right? That's the kind of environment this is. So I'm perfectly comfortable around people I don't agree with who I think are good people. That's great. Likely would be one of those people. And so would Senator Cornyn. By and large, I'd say the same thing about Senator Rubio, who I think has done incredible work on the hostage space. I think he's made a couple of dumb statements about Venezuela. I think he knows that they were dumb. And those two mistakes in no way, I don't think, obscure the tremendous work that he's done on the issue. You know, I'm a Floridian. He's my senator. So I, I am quite pleased with the work he's done on hostage diplomacy. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're sensible enough to realize that these politicians have to say certain things mm-hmm. uh, for their constituencies. They often say things 
in public that are different than what they say in private. And you sort of recognize that and you're, yeah. you'll take what you can get. Yeah. And oftentimes <laughs> in these fights, you make friends with people. You you meet their staff. You know, you've, you've seen pictures of their staff's kids. I knew Senator Lee's son was graduating from law school like a weekend or two ago. And they become human to you. And one of the problems in D.C. and how we got to this toxic partisanship is Congress is a part-time job these days. They fly in on Tuesday or whatever at 6 p.m. and they go home on Thursday on the first flight they can possibly book themselves on. They don't know each other. They don't know each other's spouses and kids. It's really easy to hate people you don't know. And we fall into that, that kind of tribalism a lot. So I think one of the things that's important on this or any issue is getting together with the people who are working on it and learning who they are as humans, not just what their political beliefs are. Yeah. Do you mind if I share a personal? Please. <laughs> so you grew up in D.C. I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida, and I literally spent my afternoons and evenings in the gallery of the Florida legislature. So I did well in civics. My mother was a social <laughs> service lobbyist. And nice. And I remember it was like late 1970s and I was in there um, in the gallery and the late congresswoman then Florida Senator Carrie Meek, who I've met, oh, yeah. really like her. She and W.D. Childers were fighting and they were cursing and they didn't censor things back there. I thought they were going to kill each other. I said, Mom, they hate each other. And my mother said, oh, honey, they're going to go have a drink at Clyde's. They're just playing to their base. These people holiday together. So it does seem like people got along personally more uh, back then. Is that your take on things? Yeah. And, you know, even today, if you go hang out on in a hub city for and by that, I mean, Chicago, Atlanta, Detroit, uh, LaGuardia, you will end up running into the last I flew to D.C. last week. I flew with Senator Peters, um, Senator Haggerty and Senator uh, Stabenow, a bipartisan group of senators. They're all sitting together. They're friends. So I think you're right. There's a lot. Americans don't. One of the things that I think we've we've done poorly is is political people. So I don't think Americans are in on the joke that when people argue in public, a lot of the times in private, they're still friends. And this is right. more like the debating society going on than it is real life. And you I know, think we've got to tone that down. Yeah. Well, you know, when they had all those votes for the speakership mm -hmm. and there were no rules, C-SPAN was allowed to be in there nonstop. I wish they were in there all the time. And what was very- what was very, you know, elucidating to me, and you and I know this, they had, uh, what's that game, that guy's name, Matt Gates from the Panhandle. Who's oh, very, Matthew, right. he makes they, me crazy, right. but I love him. He and I worked together on an issue once, and I actually liked the guy. Yeah, but right? my point was he and Representative Sheila Jackson Lee were laughing and talking, and we saw this with other people on the left and right. I think uh, Representative uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was talking to to, uh, I don't know, maybe Matt Gates, but it was I guess, Matt, yeah, yeah. So it's, I think people, it was good to see that. I mean, this is just theater for the most part. Although I have heard that it has been more rancorous and sometimes it has become personal. Like I know a lot of people don't like Senator Cruz. And by the way, there is an open invitation for Senator Cruz to be on this show because I, you know, back to Cruz, I just want to ask you, why do you think he didn't help? Was he just, I mean, why didn't his staff want to help? 
I don't know. Um, I, I I never know why he does whatever he does. And, you know, quite frankly, I didn't really want his help. If I'm being honest, it was important to the Reeds. They're from Texas and it was important to have them aboard, him aboard or at least try. I also don't think you've obviously, if you've read about our, our interactions with Cruz, you've read what Trevor's father has said about him. These are not Ted Cruz fans, you know, Trevor appeared in his, you know, one and only one political ad last cycle, and it was for Congressman August Pfluger, and who comes from the second most Trumpy district in America. And I would have made that I would have sat for that commercial if I had been asked without a out of second thought. Super conservative guy that I don't agree with on a lot of things. But that man, like another one I'd walk through fire for. And I'd love to, if you know any of these people, send them my way. I'd love to interview okay. them. And when Senator Cruz comes on my show, maybe you can help me question them. <laughs> um, huh. So, um, um, so now let me ask you, what has the U.S. State Department done right? And I know you have some criticism. So what criticisms do you have of them? And if you could... I'd like you to distinguish between how the State Department under President Trump has done versus the State Department under President Biden. So I and I do criticize the State Department a lot. And implicit in that is the fact that I I see them as the op, you know, the foreign service officers that are in the line of fire every day. Every single one of them is a hero. What they do is heroic. I can't do that work or I can never get that kind of security clearance. And um, I have a lot of respect for the men and women who do the job every day, right? My criticisms are entirely directed at the seventh floor, right? The executives, not at everyday foreign service officers. And I think everybody knows that. Um, I would say that I would like to see, sometimes the State Department has the same problem in the White House, right? Way too heavy on the best and the brightest. And um, they don't adequately prepare you at Harvard or Yale Law School for dealing with thugs. They just don't. They provide. They prepare you great for being a policy genius, right? I don't think it prepares you for, for dealing with thugs, right? And I've often said that perhaps they need to get a team of people over there, right, that is a little better at dealing with thugs, even if they can't do complicated policy matters. So I guess that's my criticism. I think they need to get better at dealing with thugs. I've got to say, as much as the bureaucracy didn't change much between Biden and Trump, one thing that remained constant is something I'm always going to be grateful to President Biden for is he kept our special presidential envoy for hostage affairs, Roger Carstens, at his post, right? Roger's a conservative Republican. He was actually roommates with Mike Pompeo at West Point. So um, another person that I would walk through fire for, right? And I was actively involved in the campaign to force the incoming Biden administration to hold him over. And if he ever gets terminated, look out, there's going to be World War III. And well, that's, you know, I, I didn't know this. I mean, I, there's a tendency for politicians to get rid of for political purposes, the previous administration and bring in people that helped them on their campaign. So, so that sounds good. Um, so do you think that I just want you to compare the Trump administration with the <laughs> Biden administration? Do you think they're both handled things as well or one handled them better? So I think they're they're diametric opposites, right? The Trump people were too impulsive and the Biden people are too contemplative. And if we could just meet in the middle between the two, we would have we would be rolling. Um, I would say that I think 
that I, I am much more enamored of the leadership at state under Biden. I think the last period of leadership at Trump was lackluster. And I think that they did a lot of damage to the world. Things like pulling out of the JCPOA. What is the JCPOA for? The, the, um, the Iran nuclear deal. And that was a massively destabilizing thing. I think that they were too, way too ideological. Yeah, we don't have the luxury of being so ideological when we're trying to bring people right. home. Yeah. And we don't have the logic. We don't have the luxury of sitting around in a room thinking in circles for a year, which is what this administration did when it took office. They rightly point out that once they got it together, they have produced a historic number of releases in the past, what, 400 days. Remarkable, right? It's a historic accomplishment. But from January of 2021, all the way through end of April 2022, they were just out to lunch, right? They weren't bringing people home. They weren't making plans to bring anybody home. There was a complete lack of urgency at the White House. Many of them thought these cases were unsolvable. And the families dragged them into doing these trades and resolving these cases, kicking and screaming. But how we got there doesn't matter at this point. We need to not go back to the period where we're sitting in an ivory tower having, you know, theoretical discussions till the cows come home and doing nothing. That's what we need. And we don't need to go back to that era. But now they're doing stuff. And I love it. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you. So it sounds like they're getting better and they may be a lot better listening to people like you. And they probably are. also. I I don't want to I don't want to take credit (laughs) for that. Right. Because, A. I don't know that I want them listening to people like me on major issues of foreign policy, right? But I do think I helped push in the right direction and well, showing them that the politics weren't so bad. I'm just curious, do you, th- and, and this is a nonpartisan podcast mm-hmm. and you work with both sides, if the president changed hands to a Republican, somebody like um, DeSantis or Trump, would this just be devastating to this process? Or do you think that this could continue or do you think it would be too disruptive? Would it be devastating? The evidence is probably not. Trump, for all of his faults, this particular issue, bringing people home, has always resonated with him. Now, I do realize that it resonated with him for entirely the wrong reason. And really what it is about is he likes to take pictures of these people when they come home. Right, ego. Um, and, yeah. But who cares? <laughs> it gets it done. Like one of the best moments of the Trump administration, one of what I think is about three or four things he did right. There was a guy named Pastor Brunson that was in Turkey and he had been in Turkey for like 10 years and, and for thought crimes. It was outrageous. Fox got him all hyped up. Right. And one day Trump made an announcement that crashed the Turkish economy overnight. He put sanctions on it and it crashed the Turkish economy. And about two weeks later, Pastor Brunson was sitting in the Oval Office taking photographs with him. And that is reckless as that might sound is exactly what we need to be doing. Right. This problem won't go away until we decide to cause pain for the people that are doing it and pain for the people they love. Right. right? And that is not something we're used to as Americans. But Jonathan, it sounds like, I mean, it was good that those people came home, but it sounds mm-hmm. like this is just based on the whims of foreign president Correct. Trump and his mood and ego and it's haphazard. That sounds a little bit dangerous to me. I don't know. It's dangerous, right? But sometimes it can be harnessed to get things done quickly. The Biden administration 
post-March of 2022. I would take that over just about anything. Right. right? So they're it's getting that good. Okay. So they're striking the right balance. And so it sounds like a continuation. Um, well, with... would I be happy with a Nikki Haley or an Asa Hutchinson? I could live in that world. And they've had a lot of experience with this. But what about... Ron DeSantis, who's had no foreign policy experience, is he a wild? Well, I think pro- he made a fool of himself on the on his foreign trip. I, I actually, when he was in the Congress, he was great on my first case. I actually, I haven't talked to him in what since 2016 or 17, but I liked the guy when he was in Congress. I don't agree with him, but I liked the guy. These, you know, past couple of years, this Florida governor, I don't think he can get anything done. I don't know that he has it, it, these list of accomplishments that he's proffering in Florida are all culture war things, right? They're not, I mean, our property insurance market's out of control. You you know, at any moment, the property insurance debacle could blow up and we'd have a lot of uninsured homeowners. Um, It's just, there's a lot going on in Florida that isn't getting fixed. So if he's going to be out there fighting a bunch of divisive culture war issues and having wars with Walt Disney, it's it's he's useless. It's very sad. I talked about him in a previous podcast in terms of higher education culture war and the takeover of New College and University of Florida and firing people and banning books and government takeover of a private corporation. This is all almost communist totalitarian. But I read a letter today from a from a Florida school district to apparently a a a unimpressive white parent who wrote a letter about being uncomfortable that there was a book about segregation in a school library. And I'm thinking to myself, can we put these people on some sort of deserted island where they can't <laughs> communicate with the rest of us? Come on now. These folks that talk about American exceptionalism, but don't want their kids to learn anything about American history. I don't have time for these people. I mean, like, as far as I'm concerned, they ought to get in the ocean and start swimming. We're <laughs> we're on the same page, John. We're on the same page. I just like, I don't understand why the whole point of education is to like, in my course of my education, I read a lot of aberrant things. I read Matt Mein Kampf. Um, I've read Machiavelli, which a lot of which if put into actual practice would be really dangerous. That's just part of my education. It didn't, it doesn't make me a reading that didn't make me want to become a Nazi didn't make me love the Nazis. It just made me think what an idiot this guy was as a writer. But, you know, his ability to rally people to his side was unparalleled and dangerous. I mean, it yeah, taught me a lot about the dangers of demagoguery. And there's a lot of research that shows that if students are, are exposed to all sides and if DeSantis wants to crank out conservatives, he, he'd have better luck if they're exposed to all sides and they arrive at those positions based on intellectual questioning of things and intellectual curiosity. And, you know, that's a whole nother topic. But I want to now let's get into foreign policy. Generally, you seem to be game for this. Um, and, and I will confess as much as my school and every other school is, is thought to be some sort of bastion of liberalism. I, you know, my international relations education started and ended with John Mearsheimer. Right. And I don't think anybody has ever accused him of being particularly liberal. Um, yeah. So I, this whole idea of liberal professors is there's been a lot of studies on this and it's complicated, but it doesn't yeah. make students more liberal. Um, my pre- my professor that, that that pretty much formed me as an international relations student was a conservative. And I am darn glad that I had he was he was a disciple of Condi Rice. Like 
And I'm darn glad to have had his perspective. He didn't try to push anything on me. He made us read what he would call stupid stuff from both sides. And then he'd make us read smart stuff. And sometimes it was lefty, sometimes it was righty, and sometimes it was right down the middle. Right. And, you know, I interviewed someone who was teaching at University of Florida who said that he is no longer there because they scoured his class and he talked about anti-racism and Black Lives Matter and this diversity, the diversity word. And, you know, it's it's just so sad because when I, I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Florida and there were conservative professors, especially like an econ and business, mm-hmm. there were some in sociology, they were liberal, but we could say whatever we want. And I teach policy. I do not teach in Florida thank God right now. And I talk about everything. My students can talk about everything. And that's what education should be about. And I think like, and I come from this as a perspective, somebody the guest taught at USC, don't make a proviso. Don't worry. There was actually a real professor in the room the whole time I was supervised. (laughs) This doesn't seem to be a student's problem. This seems to be a parent's problem. And the students that I worked with, had very interesting questions that that did not necessarily betray their political leanings. And we had several conservative students in every class, and they were always some of my favorites. I didn't necessarily agree with them, but I loved that they had the, you know, the guts to come out and 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 say what they believed. And they 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 added to the class, right? And I would tell them that, right? There were a ton of kids in that class that grew up on the west side of Los Angeles that had never seen the real world. Having that balance by some folks that maybe weren't lefties from California, I think was healthy for all of them. Yeah, we need real debate. Like I remember Bill Buckley and Sam Harris, and those are wonderful debates where people aren't, you know, attacking each other personally. So Right. All right. We seem to be in agreement on that. So now I want to talk about if you're game, I want to talk about foreign policy generally. So I, mm-hmm. I want to ask you about Syria. And I admit I don't know enough about this. I have read that the U.S. has about a thousand troops in Syria. And my understanding is that there's a lot of tension between Turkey and the Kurds. And there there's so many factions. The U.S. has troops and there's this sort of fog of war and it's unclear if the U.S. is helping the good guys or the bad guys, and I think there's good and bad in everybody. So in addition to Turkey, Russia has troops there. And it seems, you know, Russia seems to want the sides to all sides to come together. But all of this involvement from various countries and fighting among these factions seems very messy. And I just want you to clarify if I got anything wrong. And do you agree that the U.S. should have troops there? And if you were advising the State Department, would you what would you tell them? I think we're, you know, getting a fair amount of bang for our buck with those kind of with that level. I'm not sure that I would be interested in 10,000 troops, but a thousand troops kind of keeping the stability. Right. If um, uh, it, it feels like the taxpayers are getting a good value for that. And also it's not necessarily putting undue burden on the force. Right. We're not asking. When you have a thousand guys right in a place, you can give people six, nine month tours right. as opposed to what they were doing in Iraq and Afghanistan and holding people for 18 months. And that's too much. I'm happy to have some U.S. troops there, but we allowed Syria to get way out of control. Right. There was a red line set. We didn't enforce it. And I don't think there's anything worse in foreign policy than setting a red line and not enforcing. Right. Yeah. So we have at least two Americans being held hostage there. and. And to do have, whatever it takes to get them back. I didn't know that. And we have troops there. The troops can't just go get them. <laughs> we, I'm not 100% sure we know where they are. Okay. Um, 
We I know didn't they're alive. Make, I, didn't, I didn't mean to make light of that. I just well, uh, I mean, they may very well know. Like, I I would not necessarily be opposed. I'm not sh- to taking them by force. I never am. But I just don't think it's. I think it's probably not viable. Um, they are probably. I mean, this is Austin Tice, um, the journalist who's been there since 2012. Um, it, it's quite outrageous, and. Also, Dr. Maj Kamalnaz, who is a world-renowned child psychotherapist who treats – whose expertise is in treating war-traumatized children. And wow. he was there to help Syrian children, and they kidnapped him. And they haven't gotten a lot of press. No. Austin has. Austin's gone viral, right? The Kamalnaz family has struggled a little bit to get you know attention on that case, and – you know, it is one of the cases that scares me, right? Because we really don't know where he is. And Syria is famous for using black sites to hold people and hold foreign prisoners out of, you know, Assad's paranoia. I mean, these folks could be held anywhere in that country. And I think, you know, I was thrilled when we talk about the Trump administration, when they let Ambassador Carson's fly to Damascus and talk with the Syrian intelligence folk. And our position, I think, needs to be that we will meet with any we are ready to meet with anybody. We are willing to talk to anybody and we are willing to consider absolutely anything to get our people back. So there is this sort of I like to see things on a continuum and there's sort of this continuum of total isolationism and total interventionism. And then there's some sweet spot that you and I could probably agree on with internationalism. And so to this point, in all of my political science classes, I like to play a clip of Brett Stevens, a conservative New York Times columnist who makes the case for U.S. interventionism. And I'm just going to play an abbreviated clip and then I'll get your reaction. So here's the clip. Should America be the world's policeman? Whenever this question is asked, the answer is usually no. Progressives will say that it suggests American arrogance, who made America the boss of the world. Many conservatives especially those with libertarian leanings, will answer that what other countries do to their neighbors or even to their own people is of no concern of ours. What's the alternative? One answer is the United Nations. But their record at keeping the peace is abysmal. What about dividing the world into spheres of influence? Is that really a good idea? Do we want a world where Russia gets to do what it wants toward democratic neighbors such as Latvia and Iran dominates its region and so on? Would such a world lead to peace? or to ever more violent competition over the borders of those spheres. And of course, there's an idea that if America leaves the world alone, the world will leave America alone, if only. The Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky once said that you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Great powers don't get to take a vacation and don't get to take themselves off the terrorist target list. So. We quickly come to an inescapable conclusion. The United States is the world's policeman because there is no alternative, and everybody knows it. But what if Americans don't want the job anymore? What if the cop walked off the beat? The answer is clear and well-grounded both in history and current events. When America retreats, the bad guys advance. The order the U.S. has provided has not only had enormous security benefits for all the world, it has produced phenomenal economic advantages. Global GDP, just 11 trillion in 1980, doubled by the time the Cold War ended a decade later. By 2012, it reached 72 trillion. The debate over the value of an American supervised peace 
Pax Americana should have been settled long ago. If the world's leading liberal democratic nation doesn't assume its role as world policemen, the world's rogues will try to fill the breach. Then the world would be very much like it was in the 1930s, when Western self-doubt, war-weariness, economic turmoil, American self-involvement, and the rise of ambitious dictatorships combined to produce unprecedented death and mayhem. Not everyone grows up wanting to be a cop, but no one wants to live in a neighborhood or a world where there is no cop. Would you? I'm Brett Stevens. So I should know that this was from 2015, and he references uh, progressives being isolationists, and that seems to have flipped with the recent war on Ukraine. Now, Democrats in Congress and President Biden have been united in our intervention to help Ukraine. And the flipping is that some Republicans have been critical and now are isolationists. So what is your reaction to Stevens and others who say that the U.S. needs to be the world's policeman? It's a tough one. I think one of the U.S.'s greatest failings in my lifetime was standing by and watching the Rwandan genocide. Yeah. Right? That is a point. It, that is a thing where I would have been willing to flood that place with a couple hundred thousand troops. But being the world's policeman in every situation is getting our people kidnapped. We are setting people up and catching them in third party countries. And then bring him back here. The guy we traded for Trevor Reed had never set foot in the United States until he was extradited to the Southern District of New York. He was flying drugs in Africa. He absolutely committed violations of the laws of the, the African nation of Liberia, which has a functioning court system. In fact, we helped them design it. It's actually a good court system. He could have been prosecuted there. That was an issue for the Liberians to deal with, not us. Stuff like your boot. We picked him up in Thailand. The Russians consider that a kidnapping. There's another guy named Roman Zeleznev, who's the son of a, a high-ranking Duma member. He's a hacker. We picked him up in the Maldives, where we don't have an extradition treaty. And the Secret Service literally grabbed him off a runway, put him on an airplane. And I mean, it borders on a rendering. But, you know, is the guy guilty? Absolutely, he's guilty. But we have to think about the, uh, the second and third order consequences when we go play world's policemen and go right. arrest foreign nationals in third party countries. Right. Picking our battles and not poking the bear. Yeah. Like the, this Alex Saab guy that I was talking about that, that we could trade our people that are held in Venezuela for tomorrow when we extradited Alex from the Cape Verde within hours. Maduro had sent thugs out to get all our people who were on house arrest and return them to prison within hours. That's how quickly they reacted. So I am a I think when the Department of Justice goes around the world, rounding up other people's nationals, other countries, nationals in third party countries, when we don't absolutely have to. I just I don't know what the sometimes I wonder what the virtue of that is, if it's going right. to get our people kidnapped in return. You've already, you sort of alluded to this, but all of the studies I can find indicate that attempts to externally impose democracy by the U.S. just don't work. But, you know, however, and this is a big however, I am glad that President Biden took the lead on intervening in U Ukraine and most scholars- 100%. Most scholars today reject complete isolationism. So as I said, I see foreign policy on this scale from extreme isolationism to extreme interventionism. And where are you on this continuum? And Probably what do you right think in the middle. And what do you think right. about you, how we've handled Ukraine? I think Ukraine is, you know, I think we've handled it well, because I think 
one of the things that this wacky conservative opposition to Ukraine is is missing is that we are fighting in Ukraine because if we don't stop Russia in Ukraine, they are going to miscalculate and show up in a NATO country. And then we are going to have to send a generation of American kids to go fight another war in Europe. And I don't think there was not political will in the United. What do we have? Five, six thousand casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan over that 20 year period. And I don't think that there I mean, I think the political will wore thin for that back before the troop surge. And I don't think there's any will whatsoever in the United States to fight a major war, which we in which we would have to call a draft. Right. So, I think I think Pete, we've learned our lesson, but it took a hell of a long time. In fact, I don't know. Do you know Congresswoman Barbara Lee? Uh-huh. OK, can you I would love to interview her. I have sent requests to her website, but I just get this sort of messaging board. I talk about her in my classes because she is the only one who voted against the authorization to mm-hmm. war on Afghanistan. And it took a lot of courage. And now everybody seems to come around to her position. So if you could just text her, I'd love that. Ha. A unanimous vote to send our young men and women into harm's way in the fog of the 9-11 and the patriotism and all of that. I'm just, I don't know. I know she took, I think she had death threats and took a lot of heat. And oh, I, yeah. I, I really want to, I really want to interview her. So, okay. She's definitely, she is one of the voices in the Congress, right? And I think, while I don't necessarily think the Congress should follow her lead at all times. I think that she has been right a lot. And I do appreciate the fact that she is utterly unwilling to send generations of American kids off to die. And I'm not going to lie and say that I didn't support both of these wars when they started. Right. I remember being somewhat giddy that we were finally retaliated. Right. I learned my lesson. Right. I will never support anything like that ever again. Right. Because and- yeah, the problem is we were arming bad guys. And like I was talking about, you know, we don't know good guys from bad guys. And you cannot impose democracy on a country that hasn't already had some experience with democracy. Like, you know, it's just we won't. Uh, that's a rather. Well, hard. I mean, I think there is not in recorded history an example right. of us imposing democracy anywhere where the people themselves didn't want it. People come up with the Philippines. I don't think that that's a correct example. Um, I agree with you. Yeah, you could Ukraine. <laughs> I mean, I, I can think of places where we could impose democracy. Right. Um, I think that if we were to invade Myanmar, I do think that the Burmese people want to live in democracy. Right. And that right. could work. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. If we are um, supporting and raising up and doing fighting for a popular movement that has widespread support among the people who live there, I think we have a chance. But these sort of rolling over on ships and, you know, rolling in in tanks, thinking that people are going to throw roses at us. Yeah. So I have a related question. So according to a 2021 report by um, the Cost of War Project at Brown University, from 2018 to 2020, the U.S. engaged in what it labeled as counterterrorism activities in 85 countries, ranging from training or assisting um, a country's uh, military, you know, they asked for us to help, to actually um, conducting U.S. strikes. So did these numbers sound about right to you? And what do you think about this? 
I don't know whether the numbers are right. I, I've often worried that counterterrorism operation in general, right, is an end run around the War Powers Act. And yeah. um, I would like if we are going to have troops stationed somewhere and especially if they're going to be engaged in combat, I want to make sure that at least the foreign affairs committees and the armed services committees and the intelligence committees on the Hill know exactly what's going on. Yeah, well, I mean, I think somebody the, needs to oversee it. The War Powers Act is just like a piece of paper at this point. I mean, I think Senator Tim Kaine, who's a Democrat of uh, Virginia, he's one of the few people that he always says, look, we need the Congress needs to do this, not the president. And the Congress needs to pass a law that reestablishes its authority in this process, which it has ceded to the executive branch long ago for purposes of political expediency. So it didn't have to make these decisions. And I I think that if we could get a functioning Congress back, (laughs) that we need to we need to get back to a place where Congress has a voice in these I am haunted when I've talked to students at high school and college level. I have to always remember they weren't alive when these decisions were made or they were so young that they don't they didn't materially participate or even understand what was going on. And it was people my I was in college when 9-11 happened. I, I remember the day and I was, you know, pulled out of government class because people thought my dad might have died in the towers. Um, oh. but he didn't, he, but he was on the last Delta shuttle to actually safely land in New York. When I look at all the goofy stuff that I thought was a great idea from the Patriot Act to whatever these extreme interrogations things were, I mean, back in the, after we had just been attacked, I think a lot of us said, do whatever the hell it takes to get right. the information to keep this from day. Right. And now looking back on it, realize that that was entirely the wrong approach and that we made a lot of mistakes chief among them, sending way too many American kids out to the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan and in Iraq to fight wars that really did not have any bearing on American national security, right? We should have fought the Afghanistan war from the air, bolstered the Northern Alliance to the extent that those are good people, which I'm not always convinced of. And the Iraq war was just unnecessary. Right. But, you know, this is a nation of cowboys. And if the people lead, the politicians will follow. And there was just such a drumbeat eye for eye. We have to do something. And they don't care about all the studies that I have. And, you know, they don't want to sit around a round table for two years. Um, I will admit to having been one of those people back in the day. Right. I was in my early 20s. I was young and stupid. And the country had just been attacked. Right. And I, I, you know, I, I will admit I, I was one of those people seeing red, (laughs) right. And saying, let's blow this place off the face of the planet. You and everybody else, except representative Barbara Lee. So, well, and like now every day, what changed my mind is in 2007, the Cindy Sheehan thing when she was, and I was working for the leader and I've got to tell you, those moms were pretty scary. Right. They would come into people's offices and refuse to leave. And you couldn't kick them out. Like, how did that look? Kicking out Cindy angry moms of of dead American heroes. Right. And it may every time now I see somebody that is, you know, got injured or permanently disabled in one of these wars. I look and I say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that 
so many of us got it so wrong that you were uh, you were sent out with little input to fight what were effectively dynastic wars. Like, you know, we were trying to take these places over. I, I have a hard time looking at the people in the op. These people that got seriously injured and wounded because I feel like I failed them as a citizen. Yeah, there was profits from private uh, military uh, companies and the military industrial complex, and they give to politicians. Now, that's very cynical, but I can't help believe that that does play a part in our involvement around the world. I think so. I, I think that absolutely does. And I think that there are folks at these, con- you know, these military contractors that are consistently looking for new markets for their products, which are wars. So sad. (laughs) And, you know, to me, this is about, I mean, quite frankly, all the hostages I've worked for have been veterans or or active duty, right? I only do military cases. And uh, some of that is me trying to, it's my version of repentance, right? For having been way, way too willing to send other people's kids off to die. Well, and you, you and everybody else. I mean, you know, do you remember when they were trying to do the, you know, the far left was trying to do defund the war in like 2007? You know, they were trying to literally there were bills in Congress to defund troops in the field. And yeah. I yeah. remember Leader Hoyer looking at the staff and saying to us, we don't defund troops in the field under any circumstances ever, period. We're not going to talk about it. And he, I remember one of the things that's always stuck with me that he said is you don't send other people's kids to war unless you are willing to go into their living room, sit with them and explain why their kids need to go. And that has stuck with me. I wish I had had that thought and heard that from him in 2000. I would have been opposed to the wars. Right. So are you up for playing a little <laughs> rating? You know, I'm a teacher, so I like A through F. So yeah. I, do, I would like you to rate <laughs> The current president and the last three presidents, and we're going to include Biden, even though he's only had to have a term. Mm-hmm. And we're going to rate them on two things, um, how they've handled this prisoner negotiation issue mm-hmm. and their overall foreign policy. So we'll start with President George H.W. Bush. I don't know much about how he handled the pre- the, the, the prisoner issue because I wasn't doing this work back then. What I will say broadly is as a human, as a human being. I would give President Bush a 4.0. I think he's a great guy. As a on foreign policy, I mean, can you go below zero? Okay, so you would give him a D or an F. Okay, and that's a lot to do with Cheney, right? That's a lot to do with. Well, it's a lot to do with having been starting that. Honestly, Afghanistan, I can understand why. You know, there's a good argument for having that war. There is zero good argument for having the Iraq war, and it was sold on a lie. So I think if you do that, you, you your foreign policy grade goes down to the floor. Right? Okay. President Obama. On foreign policy, I think I would give him a C plus B minus. Okay. Um, and part of that was I don't think he was decisive. I think he spent way too much time. And I get it. His mantra was for foreign policy, which I really appreciate, is don't do stupid shit. And <laughs> I am totally with him on that. And so I'm not saying I disagreed with him a lot. I'm just saying I don't think it was effective sometimes. Well, and on the prisoner issue, not good. Gosh, no. And I, I don't even know that I want to pick a grade. I, I point not, out not, to people on a frequent not, time. 
not passing. Not passing. C. Okay. Well, right. C's passing. D plus, D, C D minus. Plus. <laughs> we had hostages beheaded because of his administration being out to lunch. And I don't have great ad- memories of the Obama administration in the prisoner issue, to put it that way. Okay. What about President Trump? Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> my God. Um, an F on foreign policy. Wow. And um, I, I just don't. I don't think there was a foreign policy, right? right. Like yeah, I think was. it was his whim and impulse. So on the prisoner issue, I think he deserves a B or a B plus, despite the fact I have to hold my nose because yeah. I thought the manner in which he tried to get press and accolades off of the returned hostages was gross. And it made me wonder if that was in fact his motive and not freeing the hostages. Yeah, so, to, the, to the Trump point, I can't even categorize him as whether he's an isolationist or because some days he was an isolationist, some days he was an interventionist. So what about President Biden? I think it's a mixed bag. Um, so I would probably give him a B. Um, I, I'll be honest, like I looked at that Afghanistan withdrawal and I saw all of the failures of the Obama administration coming back to roost. Lack of decisiveness sort of puppies and butterflies projections um, did not like the way the administration reacted to that, right? We were told that this withdrawal would be orderly. It would not be Saigon. It was not orderly and it was Saigon the remix. So it's possible that there was no more orderly way to exit Afghanistan. I could accept that. But if that's true, they shouldn't have told us it would be orderly, right? right? And And he took way too long to get back on an airplane and show up in Washington, D.C. He was at Camp David or something, as I recall. My response was, get on a dinging airplane tonight and address the country tonight, right? Right. You don't have four days to dilly-dally when you have just produced Saigon the remix because your team did poor planning. And that was early in his presidency. Um... And and to this day, their unwillingness to take responsibility for that mistake is breathtaking to me. Like how many troops died? How many... Was it 13? We had American kids die because they didn't do their jobs. So but you I think still the, give, you still give them a B. Yes, because I think they made a turn. I think they made a turn last year when uh, it's almost like they finally got their courage and they started throwing elbows and it started to work. My my grading them down is largely entirely about what I saw on TV on Afghanistan. Okay. So can you speak to the financial costs in addition to the severe emotional costs of these families, of these unlawfully detained prisoners? And should the U.S. government provide some financial support or other assistance to these families while they're going through all of this? Uh, these cases are financially devastating, even for people with resources. Just devastating. I mean, the Reeds walked out to the verge of bankruptcy trying to get their son back, emptied their retirement accounts, right? Turns oh. out- Russian lawyers charge American prices to Americans, talking about a six-figure legal defense. So I think the American government should indemnify our people in these situations. Now, if we start doing stuff like that, then they're just going to play games with who they designate wrongfully detained and who they don't, so they don't have to get involved for political reasons. But 
Yes. I mean, I, I don't see any reason Congress can do this. I don't think Congress has a clue how <laughs> financially devastating this is. I mean, they say they have a clue, but they've never actually taken any steps to help. If we're going to have the government indemnify folks, at least for legal defense and things like that, there needs to be a bill passed giving an authorization for that and authority for it. And then there needs to be an appropriation. You so think it could be a campaign issue. I'd love it to be a campaign issue. I am hesitant to make anything a campaign issue in a campaign with Donald Trump because I am hesitant to do anything that might upset the apple cart. I think a second Trump presidency would result in, I mean, it might be the end of the republic. You know, I have a, can, a, a Canadian colleague and I, I frequently said during the Trump presidency, right, how hard is it to get a residency permit? Like, you know, your country is still rational. It's, it's a merit-based system. So right. you, you have a lot of education. So I'm sure they want you. I'm sure they would want me, but like, would they then want me to be a, you know, um, a critic of the Canadian government? And I have no doubt. In fact, I've given a lot of interviews on Canadian television and radio. And the Canadian hosts tell me all the time that I would have the same criticisms that I have in the American government of the Canadian government. So you but, made a point or two. Yeah, but I mean, at least in the, in in Canada, I mean, Parliament can be dissolved and they can have you know snap elections. I I think we might benefit from that. No, I'm kidding. I just you know I don't think we can sustain another Trump presidency with that much chaos, that much poor decision making. And I mean, the last one sort of brought up you know raised a pitchfork mob of the garbage can of America that ended up trying to take over the Capitol, right? Oh. So. It's like a I bad am nightmare. right. So if this were a race between let me think of a really qualified Republican, like I was for John Kasich in 2016. So let's take Biden versus Kasich. In that case, two substantive people with the ability to do policy. I would love to make this a campaign issue because on this issue, I couldn't go wrong with a John Kasich or a Joe Biden. They're both good people. Right. And just to be clear, this is a nonpartisan uh, podcast. And I for sure president, former President Donald Trump has an open standing invitation to come on here. So let's just wrap up. Um, what can people do who want to help bring U.S. hostages home? And what are some of the NGOs and other organizations that provide support to these families? I think one thing that they could do to be really helpful is follow our family campaign on social media. It's Bring Our Families Home campaign and in, in every single platform, it's B-O-F-H campaign. The reason I say that is if you want to help with this issue, you need to understand the issue and, and understand the developments and, 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 and hear directly with no filter from these families about their experience. And that's the best way to do it. I think for those with resources that want to share them, places like the James Foley Foundation, Hostage US, the Richardson Center for Global Engagement, although that is generally funded by large donors, not small dollar donors, but James Foley in particular and Hostage US, um, they need every bit of help that they can get. They are the two nonpartisan they're almost like veteran service organizations for hostages. And then, you know, government, Governor Richardson's group um, does something completely different and actually helps conduct the diplomacy that brings people home. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan, for taking time out of your busy schedule. I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. We welcome your feedback. Please follow the show on Twitter at PoliticsCons. That wraps up this podcast. Until next time, be kind to yourself and others.